Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals. With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and this week on the show, alienation, abandonment, and dislocated shoulders. Not your typical ingredients for a heartwarming, festive movie, but then again, The Holdovers, our film this week, and unequivocally one of my favorite movies of the last 12 months, is not your average Christmas film. Directed by the great Alexander Payne, and written by our guest today, the brilliant David Hemmingson, it's a drama steeped in the hurt of reaching the so-called most wonderful time of the year and feeling nothing but loneliness. The film tells the tale of three loners thrown together by circumstance over the Christmas break at a New England boarding school, each one disillusioned with a world that doesn't seem to want them. One of them, Paul, played by Paul Giamatti, is a miserly middle-aged academic with an odour problem. Another, Angus Tully, played by newcomer Dominic Sessa, is a livewire student of his on the brink of being sent to military school. Last but not least, we have Davine Joy Randolph's Mary Lamb, the school cook, a woman who recently lost everything. These characters find a richness in each other across the course of the holdovers that's uplifting without ever feeling schmaltzy. It is, in short, a staggeringly beautiful film, with a screenplay so touching that had the Oscars not nominated it for Best Original Screenplay this week, I may well have rioted in the streets. Luckily, the Academy Awards got this one right. In the spoiler conversation that you're about to hear, David tells me about his Uncle Earl, the real-life family member that he based Paul on. 
you'll hear how his first draft involved a woman that Paul used to date with porcelain fingers after injuring her hand in a car accident. We also spend some time debating the words, not for ourselves alone are we born, the lesson, if there is one, of this incredible movie. Massive thanks to David for being such a fantastic guest and for reminding me to revisit Stephen King's On Writing because it's been a while. And a massive thank you also to our Patreon supporters as ever. If you're not yet a member of that community, you can get involved by heading to patreon.com forward slash script apart, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you'll get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and all sorts of other perks. That address one more time in case you're interested, it's patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, that's all the admin out the way. Let's jump in, shall we? This is the wonderful David Hemmingson discussing the first draft secrets of The Holdovers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, with production by Camille Demek. David, such a joy to have you with us. How's it going today? It's going well. You know, it's a little overcast here in Los Angeles, but... Uh... That's all right. A little chilly, but you know, I'm, are you guys, you guys from Britain, obviously. You can tell from our pale complexions. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also kind of romantic. <laughs> it's very Jane Austen-esque. You guys have a Jane Austen complexion, I like to say. <laughs> well, that's a script apart first. We haven't heard that before. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So no, it's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm well today. I'm very excited to be talking to you guys about the holdovers. Very excited. Yeah, we're, we're speaking in January, David, coming out of a festive season where The Holdovers was released in the US and not just embraced, but really cherished. Like the number of people who've announced to me that they're going to watch The Holdovers every Christmas for the rest of their lives at this point is, it's wild. Like, and to those people, I always just say back, yeah, me too. Um, how special was this past December, kind of witnessing people flock to this film, um, a film that, as we'll discuss across this conversation, you put parts of yourself into, you put parts of your mother, huge parts of, of a beloved uncle, I hear. It must have been a really special few weeks. Yeah, it was. it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, the weird thing is we finished it. You know, I started about, I started writing the movie about five years ago. And so we, we finished it uh, in um, 2022. Uh, and so once it kind of went to market and Focus bought it, they felt like they wanted to do the holiday release, but they didn't think they had an adequate uh, ramp into 22. And so we held it for this year. So we've been sort of waiting for a year and a half for this finished film to uh, arrive. And so I'll be candid, you know, it's I've been in television for like 27 years. I've written a ton of TV and um, this is my first feature, produced feature. I've written a couple other features, but my first produced feature. So when you're waiting for this, you know, it, it's it's a fascinating thing because you watch it and you think you have something and you know, I mean, I can just speak for myself and I think I can speak for Alexander and Paul, certainly, but we knew we had something, you know, we didn't really know what we had until we were in the editing band. A friend of Alexander's sort of pulled me aside and said, I think this this is really resonant. I think this is a very emotional film. And, you know, I'm so close to it that that it, it was hard for me to fully appreciate and understand what it might mean to other people. And so to have it come out this Christmas after a, a kind of year and a half of, drum, of the drum roll, yeah, the drum roll <laughs> was just awesome, man. I mean, you know, what can I tell you? I mean, I love this movie to my very bones because it's so much of it, you know, of my life and my history and the people that I love are in it. Um, so it's been exquisite. It's been really, really lovely to have people respond to it. I feel like, you know, it's a movie about it's a movie about kindness. Ultimately, you know, it's a love story um, about three broken people who kind of find each other in the season of miracles and 
you know, and kind of heal each other by letting down their guard and, and, you know, kind of exhibiting some kindness to each other. Uh, and so that, I think it's an important message. So just to see that's resonating with people means a lot. I know that's a bit of a long answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I love how it is a love story, as you say, but it's not a love story in a conventional sense. It's a love story in which it's a platonic love that reaches across backgrounds. These three characters that we're going to be talking about, they're thrown together by circumstance. Each of them might have been having a very different Christmas break, had tragedy not intervened, had professional rivals not intervened, had neglectful parents not intervened. But but through their loneliness, they find something in each other. Why was that a special thing to explore? Where did that come from? You know, I just feel like I kind of go back to when I was a kid and my folks uh, split up. I was about five years old. My mom, we were lower middle class family. My mom was a nurse. And uh, it was it was just the two of us a lot of the time, you know. And she was definitely going through a lot because we were broke and my dad was the love of her life and it kind of collapsed in, in, a, in a bad way. And, um, you know, for me, the idea of exploring the issues of loneliness and transcendence and connection just just paramount in, in my in my life. You know, there have always been sort of a subtext in my work. I didn't really understand a degree to which that was actually the case until I started writing the holdovers and I realized, oh, this is kind of what you've been sniffing around for the last 27 years, you know, <laughs> these thoughts, these ideas, opinions, these sort of themes. Um, so does that, have I been responsive to that? Does that answer your question? I hope so. It does. It actually um, reminds me of something else. Like uh, a, a few years ago, we had Shane Black on the show and I asked him about this feeling that exists on the fringes of his movies, which famously are often also set against like a, a similar Yuletide backdrop. He talked about how for a lot of us at Christmas, uh, and, the, and the quote is, there's a feeling of being outside the window, looking in, wondering how they all have that brightly lit Christmas room filled with love and laughter while I'm out in the snow. And I thought about that quote during what you were just describing and uh, while watching The Holdovers, which really does have so much to do with alienation and loneliness and abandonment and how the sting of that is so much greater at Christmas because there is this expectation of festive cheer and of us all being able to kind of like engage in that cheer. Does, does that chime with what you were trying to do in specifically writing The Holdovers as a Christmas movie? Yeah, you know, I think I think Christmas is a really fraught period. I think it's a wonderful period. There's certainly, like you say, a lot of magic that rides behind it. There's kind of that, there's kind of, Dickensian tropes that we all love, you know, um, that we all gravitate toward, but it is an incredibly fraught time for people. There's a lot of self-harm that goes on during Christmas. There's a lot of, you know, alcohol abuse and other stuff that goes along at Christmas as well as festivities, you know, and then sometimes when you do have family and you collide with that family, uh, it's not always as easy as Christmas, but, you know, Shane Black's observation about the feeling of alienation, which you know, we often carry with us being enhanced or amplified during this period is absolutely one of the things I was thinking about. Um, you know, there's no better time to kind of catch people out and examine the contours of their loneliness than at Christmas time. There's no better time because, you know, you're, there's an expectation, like you're saying, you know, that, that kind of brightly lit Christmas window that we're staring into. And, and interesting enough, I'm glad, I'm glad you said staring into it. I'm glad he said it and you, and you raised it because the bottom line is that if you look at the, I, I guess it's just a spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the movie, but you know, there's a moment there and I very much wrote it this way. And Alexander and I were very much kindred spirits, you know, very much kindred spirits. We're very close friends and, and kindred spirits. And I wanted to shoot that scene when the M80 goes off from outside the um, building, like we shot it because I wanted to have that sort of almost like career and I've snapshot in through those windows, you know, 
um, of the thing that they were all missing prior to that, but they all had, you know, and literally the explosion for me was metaphorically them kind of like both an explosion is a celebration like fireworks, but also kind of blowing up the boundaries between them, you know, but we see it from outside. We see this sort of thing from outside, like we often see, you know, Christmas tableaus or like a snow globe. I mean, it kind of it resonates with the snow globe um, a metaphor that I was using earlier as well. I know that your involvement in the film, David, began with Alexander Payne ringing you up. And he, you believed it was your buddy Bob at first who had this habit of impersonating uh, filmmakers. So you nearly hung up. And, uh, and then after that, well, once you did actually hear out Alexander, having initially thought uh, you were being wound up, he handed you this logline that you were asked to adapt on the strength of a pilot that you'd written, also set in the 70s. And that, that pilot was called Stonehaven. Stonehaven was set in 1980. Yeah, exactly. 1980. Oh, I'm so sorry. Right. So, so the logline that you were handed, from what I understand, it was an ocularly challenged odiferous professor is stuck at Christmas looking after kids as a form of punishment. One of these kids uh, has been abandoned by their mother. We've got to go through that logline part by part because honestly, I imagined that some of the things evidently baked into the character of Paul from the very beginning, I thought those things may have been found along the way, but instead from the sounds of things, uh, from the very beginning, this character was going to be ocularly challenged, as Alexander puts it. He was also going to be someone who had this condition that, that makes him smell kind of bad. Why was that important from the off in, in terms of who this character was going to be? For Alexander, like we talk about isolation. We were just talking about the theme of isolation, you know. And I think, you know, it's not, it's, you know, we learn a lot about Paul's backstory, you know, and, and, I, and I've been very careful to just bleed in like little kernels of it, such as, you know, late in the movie, I'm not my father, no matter how hard he tried to beat that idea into me. It's a very challenging relationship with his dad. We learn that later. But from the get-go, I think AP wanted him to be, and I think he, he picked up his premise from, from a, like a 1935 French movie about a guy who was like, you know, wall-eyed and, and smelled bad. He just loved the premise, the idea that, that here's a man who's the ultimate outcast who, um, who from the get-go had so many strikes against him that the wall was going to be impossible to climb. Um, and I loved it immediately because the more challenges you lay on top of a character, you know, to overcome, uh, it, it's a high bar. It's a bit of man-on-wire situation. You know, you're walking between the towers. But what's great about that is you're obliged to really explore ways in which to break down the boundaries based upon those things. Like if you have to overcome these terrible kind of, you know, disabilities fundamentally, I mean, he's, you know, he's mocked, he's, he overcorrects. His intellect is all he has because he's sort of like the hunchback of Notre Dame, you know what I'm saying? So he's kind of been marginalized um, and diminished and he overcorrects uh, by building this wall up, you know? So I think, having a character have those challenges and having overcome those challenges makes for an interesting journey and it makes for interesting impediments for him to overcome and for other people to push against. Um, so that's why it was so important you know, as a, as a, as a sort of threshold matter for the character, you know? It's interesting. You mentioned um, him using his intellect as almost a shield there. It's so fascinating, uh, his relationship with academia and, and the way it forms this protective barrier that keeps people out. He lionizes it in these academic terms. Like he, he describes always being drawn to the aesthetic of loneliness. And it's funny that there's a scene early on in the film, as we meet this guy, in which he recites the Latin for, not for ourselves alone we are born. He may know that phrase and its translation, 
but he won't learn the meaning of that mantra for himself until the end of the film. Exactly right. That was a very conscious choice on my part. Um, I wanted to do it because I wanted him to be sort of, you know, I wanted to place this sort of idea out there. But for him, it's more of a recitation of some sort of abstract Stoic philosophy that he sort of wears, you know, almost like a badge. This is who I am. This is like, you know, um, you know, this is what I stand for. But to say you stand for something or to, to, to advance some theory is radically different than living by those terms. You know, Barton man. Another thing is I'm a Barton man. Barton men do not lie. Well, Barton man ends up lying and lying to save this young man. So he kind of rewrites what it means to be a Barton man. He rewrites what it means to embrace that stoic philosophy. You know, uh, you know, he, he definitely sort of, he wears his academic credentials and his intellectual in his intellect as a shield, you know, as armor. Um, and, it's it's the process of taking that armor off, you know, and discovering his emotional intelligence. Like he has tremendous intellectual intelligence, but discovering his emotional intelligence—that's the journey of the character over the course of this of this of the story. You wrote the character Paul for Paul Giamatti, but you've described taking great inspiration from an uncle, a, a man that saved my life, as you've previously put it. Can you tell me about that man, a, a man named Earl? Who was Earl? Um, trying to see if there are any pictures of him around here anywhere. There's one on my phone. But um, yeah, there's a guy named Earl Cahill. My folks split up when I was like five and it was very acrimonious. Like I said, we were broke and it was a tough time for my mother. She was working insane hours. She'd get up a quarter or four in the morning so she could be home in time when I got back from public school to, to make me dinner. So she was exhausted and strung out and, and you know, financially we were on kind of a, of a knife's edge. And this guy who is my uncle's, my, my mother's sister's husband, my mother had a sister named Anne and she married this guy named Earl Cahill. And Earl was a sort of bald, pot-bellied um, dude with Buddy Holly glasses and like jug handle ears, right? He was no one, I think I mentioned this in an article, he was like no one's idea of a Hollywood hero, but he was 10 times cooler um, because he had had this incredibly rich life. He was born in 1920 um, on uh, in Anacortes, Washington, which is like right on the coast of Washington, grew up on an island, uh, never heard the radio until he was like nine years old. Uh, you know, so we grew up going, literally going to school on a horse. I mean, it sounds apocryphal. It does sound apocryphal, but it's totally true. <laughs> you know, and then he, he sort of found his way. He got drafted. Um, I think he enlisted actually to get out of getting drafted. So he enlisted and he went to uh, Saipan. He fought on Saipan, which is one of the Japanese occupied islands, uh, you know, in the Pacific campaign during World War II as a young man and kind of a clerk typist, you know, kind of a Raider O'Reilly type, but forced to pick up a gun. He'd grown up hunting and fishing in the wilds of, of Washington state. And, you know, stared down a lot of scary shit when he was out there and saw a lot of terrible things as a lot of those World War II vets did, you know. And on the B side, kind of wandered a little Hemingway-esque, wandered through Europe uh, after the war, trying to find himself, ended up working for the United Nations and meeting my aunt and, and marrying her. Um, and all of a sudden kind of stumbled into my life. Like my mother's marriage collapses. There's uh, her sister's husband uh, who just shows up and sees me and sees something in me and never had a kid of his own. Uh, and decides to sort of adopt me, you know, and, and in doing so, just transform me because, you know, it was a really fraught period. I think it was an at, I would be called now an at-risk at kid. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a strange person, I guess. And, uh, you know, back when I was in um, grammar school, uh, the, the concept of bullying, you know, not only was it present, but it was, it was considered almost like par for the course, like nobody stepped in, you know. So if you were a bookish, bespectacled kid, which I was, you got the stuffing knocked out of you fairly 
regularly. I mean, I was beaten by more than one kid on numerous occasions, you know, and um, it really impacts your self-esteem. It really, you know, creates a, a degree of, of um, sadness in you. Uh, it gets you very kind of on edge constantly. It creates tremendous anxiety. And this guy kind of stepped in and as opposed to just sort of saying to me, he did say to me in his own way, you know, it's going to be okay. You're worthy. But more importantly, he said, like, um, if you're looking for somebody to feel sorry for you, you're looking at the wrong guy. Um, this is not about me feeling sorry for you. This is me about, about me putting you on your feet and teaching you what's what, because the world, you know, like, like, you know, as he said, and that's an Earl quote, you know, for most people, uh, the world is like a hen house ladder, shitty and short. So he was like, what are you going to do about it? What are you gonna do about it? You know, are you going to, are you going to just put up with it? Are you going to like take this or are you going to change your life? You know, cause he said to me, he quoted my Italian grandmother who said to me, uh, you're too stupid to be a doctor. So you may want to consider becoming a lawyer. Uh, and he was sort of like, yeah, you need to get a solid education. You need to get, you know, the one thing you have is whatever's good between your ears. You know, uh, I wasn't particularly athletic. You know, I was extremely, extremely nearsighted, uh, a bookish kid. But he said, you're smart. So let's, let's get that going. Let's get, you know, your physical body into shape. Um, and he did like in the, in the movie, when he talks about speed, gentlemen, speed, you know, without sufficient exercise, the body devours itself. <laughs> I was awakened in the mornings as a kid with you know him banging on the door screaming you know sure shouting like you know wake up kid it's daylight in the swamp get out kind of a kind of a drill sergeant in some respects but also a guy who listened to me uh who turned me on to the beatles and the stones and can't heat and quicksilver messenger service all the stuff that albums that had been lying around his apartment in new york um taught me how to hunt taught me how to fish uh taught me how to fight you know taught me how to um live a life that that was in, fully engaged and taught me how to be kind to people like you know for as tough as he was he was always leading with kindness you know um he had a tremendous number of friends so Rocco hill was a remarkable man worked at the un as the uh, head of the uh, press department he was chief kind of press officer of the united nations for 30 years you know i remember as a kid going to his apartment in new york and dinner parties with like danny Kay and connie chung and all these sort of New York luminaries of the 70s and, you know, 60s, 70s and you know, basically 60s and 70s. And they all loved him. Like he, you know, uh, you know, the the um, secretaries general of the UN, like wrote personal letters to him uh, when he retired, several secretaries general. Um, so the guy was he was just a renaissance man. And um, he was he was it, Paul Hunnam is so much of Paul Hunnam is Roca Hale, so much. Um the, you know, and, and that kind of grudging love, that sort of show don't tell love, where he he showed love in a certain way that was tougher and a little, you know, it was from a different era, a different age, you know. And he also fed me books. He fed me Dickens. He fed me Horatio Alger. He fed me the Thomas Hughes books, Tom Brown at Rugby, Tom Brown at Oxford, Tom Brown School Days, which, you know, I think were from the 1880s and kind of chronicle this young British boy, scholarship boy going to, you know, um, um, rugby in Oxford and one of the greatest literary villains of all time, uh, Flashman, Harry Flashman is in those books. Um, but that gave me sort of a romantic sensibility, turned me into an Anglophile, but also, you know, endowed in me, or at least I think provoked in me the idea that you can be the hero of your own story, you know? And I think that's what Paul kind of says to Angus at the end when he's basically saying, you know, you are not your father. This is your life. You have time to turn it around. The idea that you have agency in your own life and you don't have to be you know, you aren't your past. You have had terrible things happen, but they don't define you going forward. I mean, that's all Earl. So that's, I could talk for another two hours about how wonderful he is, but that, <laughs> um, you know, that was, that was a huge part of it. Hey everyone, this is Al. Just jumping in with a quick word about one of our great sponsors this week. 
I know this is a podcast about first drafts, but guys, we have got to talk about Final Draft, the world's best-selling screenwriting software. Simply put, it's the easiest way of actualizing that exciting idea you have for a new screenplay. Final Draft 13 just dropped, and take it from me, it's by far the most customizable version of the software yet, full of easy-to-use tools so that you can get more done with your writing sessions. With industry-renowned features like the Final Draft Beatboard, Outline Editor, and Navigator function at your fingertips, you're going to find yourself charging towards your storytelling goals more efficiently than ever before. It's the first choice tool of professional screenwriters everywhere for good reason. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart your 2024 writing journey today by visiting finaldraft.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Let me confess something to you guys. When it comes to caffeine, I'm going to throw my hands up and say I'm an absolute addict. For years, I've wanted to reduce my coffee consumption so I can sleep better and feel less jittery. But coffee has always felt kind of vital to my writing process, to the point where I've worried that my productivity would drop off without it. Then I discovered Magic Mind. It's a delicious daily green shot full of all sorts of great organic ingredients that help you get into your flow state without caffeine shakes and sleepless nights. It contains a compound called L-theanine that reduces your body's stress levels and an ingredient called Bacopa Monieri that turbocharges your working memory. Try it today and start crushing your goals for 2024 by visiting magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart where you can get 30 days for free when you take out a three-month subscription. Use the code SCRIPTAPART at checkout, where you can also take advantage of their exclusive January offers. That address again is magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart, or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Um, so with Earl as a template of sorts for Paul, um, you, you sit down and you write your first draft of the film. Exactly. I'm aware of, or I, I've heard uh, of a first draft of this film in which Paul had a girlfriend who he was in a car crash with. And, and the girlfriend, as a result, has five porcelain fingers. And in this version, the focus was much more on Paul, unlike in the final film, in which um, it, it's through witnessing this kid, Angus, and his coming of age that Paul experiences the epiphanies that he needs to move forward in his life. Tell me about that draft, David. I'm, I'm very intrigued by the f f five porcelain fingers. Stephen King describes writers as one, you're one of two kinds of writers. You're either a, um, he says you're, and it's a great book. Let me just plug Stephen King's book on writing because I've read a lot of books on writing and there are many good books on writing, like Sid Field and, you know, uh, McKendrick on, on, on filmmaking and stuff. There's tons and tons and tons. If anybody out there, any of you screeners out there, want to read just a great fast read, it doesn't. It's not specific to uh, to um, screenwriting, but it's called uh, Unwriting by by Stephen King. But he describes two kinds of writers, fundamentally plotters and and pantsers. Plotters are people who are very methodical. Like Steve, uh, John Irving would be a good example of a novelist who's a plotter. Legal pads, extensive writing, extensive note taking, extensive sort of rumination. Um, what happens next is the motor as, as much as, you know, his character is the motor. Um, I'm a plotter because I'm an attorney by training. I went to law school, uh, and I practiced for three years, three months and two days, but who's counting. Uh, <laughs> and I quit fairly, fairly young, but, um, 
you know, and then they're pantsers. And so I'm a plotter. So five porcelain fingers really was my stab. I, what I like to do is write little short stories sometimes before I begin a movie, just to see if I can kind of like tell the story in paragraph form, you know, it, it almost like, you know, Raymond, Raymond Carver is a great hero of mine. Uh, and so is in terms of his writing, Roald Dahl, in terms of like, you know, the what happens next of it all. So can you tell a story that's compelling, that satisfies kind of my corruption of Mamet's big three questions? It's my kind of corruption of his his version. I think he has four, but who's the character? What do they want? What happens if they don't get it? You know, so thinking about what's going to engage the, the, the reader because we don't or, or viewer because we don't do this in a vacuum. Right. So five porcelain fingers is me just kind of going, hey, it would be interesting if this guy was stuck there and was being haunted by this thing. And in the story, she was sending him, she started sending him a finger every year uh, to remind him and he was being anguished. And so that started pinging off him, this, his discovery of her. And, and he and Angus went to find her. And Alexander, who's the consummate gentleman, read Five Porcelain Fingers and was like, I really like this. It's got, uh, you know, unbidden, unsolicited. He was like, it's got kind of a Raymond Car Carver quality. I'm like, oh, I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love Carver so much. And um, he was like, this is not, the movie though but you know it's sort of like this is not where i want to go <laughs> and so i finally said to him like what okay what weren't you responding to because you know paul giamatti was sort of the the template from early on and i said this paul would crush this he goes yeah but he's like i'm not really sure i care about paul as much as i care about the kid you know and paul's redemption is less important to me than the kid's redemption and the kid's future and so that was a fundamental recalibration early on. It was like, okay, start thinking of this in terms of what's happening with the kid and see if Paul, you know, can drive it, but also allow the kid to evolve, which was an interesting exercise from a writing standpoint, because, you know, your tip of the spear and your point of view is everything. Like who, who's, who, who are you going to be rooting for in all this? And ideally, you know, I hope and the holder was rooting for all, all three of our kind of holy family of, you know, of, Paul Mary and and um, Don and um, Angus, but the idea of using him and his experience as sort of the way in emotionally was was the adjustment that he encouraged me to make and the adjustment that I made. So then it became about, you know, the kid. I knew the kid was going to get left behind, but it's the kid's journey and Paul's sort of growth and his revelations ride behind it. So that was the fundamental change. And then once that was was figured out. I banged out 30 pages and here's the freaky thing, man. This first 30 pages came like that. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not being self-aggrandizing. Believe me, I agonized constantly, constantly. I always like to say, I spend the vast majority of my day standing in this room and shouting at the screen, what happens next? <laughs> and whatever time is left in the day, standing in front of my open refrigerator, shouting, the answer is not in here. <laughs> <laughs> so we just you know sign now actually it says the answer not in here so every time i open the fridge i see it um <laughs> it, it was a fascinating thing because the first 30 pages broke so fast they broke so goddamn fast i was like i literally man i was just like i sat down and like blap like within two days i had the first 30 pages of the screenplay and i sent them to alexander he's like i love these uh and it's pretty much that takes us pretty much up through right before the boys leave the other boys leave in the, in the original iteration and then we kind of got stuck because I, I was trying to get, he's like, do you want to keep the kids around or not? You know, because I'd, I'd outlined certain things that were in the outline, the broad stroke outline. But what I've discovered is oftentimes my outline changes as I write the movie. Um, I wouldn't say oftentimes, almost always, but you kind of want to get to a certain point. So I knew I wanted some level of redemption, some, some level of sacrifice at the end. And I knew how approximately it was going to appear. But I hit page like 30 and he was like, yeah, 
I, I, he said, the kids, you know, you can keep the kids around. I'm like, I don't want the kids around. I don't want to do Dead Poet Society. That's been done. Uh, I want it to be this little tripartite journey of these three people who find and redeem each other. I won't have to service for other kids as much as I love those kids. And so I kept going back and forth about ways to get rid of them. And um, two things happened. One, I came with the helicopter and he said, they fly off in a helicopter. And I said, yeah. And he said, a helicopter comes and takes them away. And he said, David, that's, that's Davis Ex Machina. And I said, yeah, exactly. You know, precisely. <laughs> why, why are you so, you know, zealously embracing it? And I said, look, you know, I went to Yale undergraduate and I said, you know, I was a scholarship student there. I had like four scholarships or we couldn't have afforded Yale. And I had a friend who at one point was having her 20th birthday. And she said, we're going to have a party. Can you kind of, Cording the weekend off. And I thought we we're going to go down to Rocky Neck or Weekapog or some, you know, kind of Connecticut adjacent beach, you know. And we showed up at the corner of College and Wall Street. And there was like basically Aerosmith's tour bus. It was like a rock and roll tour bus. <laughs> and we were going to Ohio. So we, we got into this rock and roll tour bus. We partied our asses off all the way to Ohio, partied at this mansion in Ohio, and then drove all the way back. And with Aerosmith? Uh, no, Aerosmith wasn't in the bus, but it was basically it had, it had been their tour bus. It was like a rock and roll tour bus. <laughs> and I remember, you know, in the early 80s, this is like in the early 80s. Thinking to myself, like 8045, thinking to myself, the rich are different. The rich are different, you know? They're different. Like if you want to do something like that, you can do that. And it, it took the form of a tour of us. But I finally convinced him after I got I enlisted uh, and he was not wrong. I mean, flying off in a helicopter could readily be just, you know, a cheap way to get rid of people. But I really felt that my experience, especially at Yale, you know, seeing those kind of rich folks, I was like, that is that's totally doable. Turns out when we actually booked the helicopter, um, we uh, were trying to land it at Deerfield. We ended up shooting at Deerfield. And the Deerfield trustees came up to us and they were like, uh, you guys can't land a helicopter on the quad. And this this was the hugest has been the script now forever. I finally convinced them. So it'd been in the script for like like a year and a half, more, more than a year, like two, three years. Yeah. And like, uh, why? And he said, well, all these buildings date back to 17... 69 and if a rotor clips one of those buildings you can't replace it so if any of these buildings get damaged or destroyed by a helicopter crash then so you need a 350 million dollar bond which the production couldn't even begin to afford <laughs> and and so we're all arguing about it and i'm a producer on the movie which we're come trying to come up with uh, what, what else could could there be aside from a helicopter and i'm getting really kind of agitated because i'm like i really want this and all of a sudden in the back in a deep background this guy raises a hand and he says it's a trustee of, of the thing. He says, excuse me, can I make a suggestion? And we said, yeah. He said, can they land a helicopter on the football field? And we're like, okay, why would you say that? He goes, well, that's where the parents normally land their helicopters. <laughs> the, the idea of like, a helicopter was completely vindicated, you know, in the moment. But once I got, with, once he got himself on the helicopter, the other problem was how do I drive the two of them together? This was the next material juncture in the writing of the screenplay. But can I just, can I just interject to say one thing though, David, like, I don't mean to interrupt, but one thing I love about this film is um, on, on the topic of the helicopter is the way that um, it, you're almost duped into thinking this is going to be a very different type of movie, a more dead poet society type tale of these kind of lost boys finding solidarity in each other and perhaps in a teacher. Because, well, you know, just when we've adjusted as an audience to Angus's situation and the sadness of that, just when bonds are beginning to form with some of the other kids and, and you think, oh, great, they're going to, this situation is survivable together. And, and this is going to be the tale of this group. 
that's when you yank them away. And um, I write them all like action movies. You know, I wrote this, I created this series called Whiskey Cavalier. It was my first time writing kind of that kind of Jason Bourne Bond kind of thing. It was a TV series for ABC. And what I learned writing it, and something I learned from Shane Black, many, as you rightly pointed out, many of Shane Black's movies, which are very action oriented often, are all set at Christmas. But, you know, write a drama, write a, a heartfelt dramedy, but pace it like it's an action film. So, you know, my feeling was like, let's get everybody off in an unexpected way for exactly the reasons you pointed out, my friend. Like, let, let's subvert expectations, you know, as long as we can do it organically. And that's where I think Alexander's sticking point was. He was arguing that the helicopter might not seem organic. But, you know, as it turned out, I think given the world we were in, the helicopter was fine. But I mean, you're right. I mean, I kind of wanted to shake the shake the Etch-a-Sketch, you know, just kind of like shake the Etch-a-Sketch and like change the audience's expectations and kind of consolidate this little family, these three people, like boil it down to them. Um, and after that, after I got to that, then it was sort of like, okay, they're there together. And then the newlywed game, game scenes kind of like started coming out uh, as a way to sort of get them to talk about. I chose the newlywed game because, you know, I remember seeing it a lot as a kid uh, on TV. I was way too young. You know, I, I was born in 64. So it's like, I was way too young to really watch that stuff in the seventies, early, late sixties, early seventies. But I remember having it on, you know, my, my mom would watch it, whatever. And having it be this sort of examination of relationships. And I thought they might be watching that at night. And it was an organic way into understanding who they were. So I got all the way through that. And then I'm like, I need to bond these two guys. How do I bond these two guys? You know, how do I do it? And I kept throwing stuff at Alexander and he was like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And I was like, I'm like writing this and he's like, no, I'm not quite buying it, blah, blah. And he was right. He's 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 virtually always right. I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writer. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, God, you're right. I'm not getting it right. And then I thought to myself, and I was just frustrated and I laughed. He said, what are you laughing at? We were Zooming one day. And I said, there's a story I want to tell you. And he said, what is this? When my, my son was uh, 10, he had a, a birthday party. My son is 22 now. He had a birthday party at a tumbling gym you know, a gymnastics gym with all these pommel horses. And I know where this is going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so one of the kids, this 10-year-old kid, whose mom was here last night, so I won't use his name. He, he, the kid knows this. He's, he's the basis of the story now. Uh, he's now in his 20s too. He's like 22 now. But this kid uh, had broken his arm recently and several times because apparently his bones are fine now, but apparently he had like kind of bird bones when he was younger. So was, his calcium was still building up and he loved to do stuff and he basically broke in his arm recently. And this was a tumbling gym party and he really wanted to go. And so his parents were fine, but his parents couldn't attend because they had some other competing obligations. So we were supposed to be looking after him, but they signed the, they signed the waiver. Uh, and we took our eyes off for a moment. It's like a whole team of parents just sort of like bird dogging these kids, you know, as, as you know, hovering in helicopter, no pun intended as his parents can be these days, turned our, turned our eyes for away for a minute. And this kid seeing all of his friends do this stuff, just goes running like a madman toward the pommel horse, hits the pommel horse, falls, <laughs> gets up to prove he's fine, throws his head, but his arm sickeningly goes like back like that, totally broken. And like two of the kids were like, throw up, you know, ambulance comes. <laughs> and I told Ellie, and I said, the kid's fine. Alexander just burst out laughing, you know? And I said, yeah, I mean, he's fine, but it was kind of terrifying and hilarious. He goes, that, that's awesome. And so I thought to myself, okay, break his arm, but no, he can't break his arm because we have to hide this whole thing. This whole thing's gotta be on for new, right? Ultimately. So dislocating the shoulder, that's what opened up the rest of it because what that did, when they get to the hospital, there's a crisis moment, again, action film, create a crisis moment. They speed to the hospital. All this lost moment, the guy is going to lose his job when they find out because the kid is in the hospital and he's gotta fill out the paperwork. 
kid drives quite, I think, quite intelligently drives the the lie, you know, um, of, you know, my dad and I were playing hockey down at Swans Pond. Um, please don't tell her. Uh, I don't want, I don't want mom dragging you back into court, dad, you know? And so Giamatti kind of goes along with it, you know? Now, this is something I learned as a screenwriter in writing The Holdovers. If you put two people on the same side of a lie, whatever the lie can be, or, or a shameful secret, but some secret that cannot be told, bad house number, never had an affair. But if you're having an affair, I'd imagine, with someone else, I'm married for 25 years, you would keep that quiet. You know what I'm saying? And in keeping it quiet, you're lying to other people. But the intimacy you share with that person, not just sexual intimacy, but also sort of like emotional intimacy and kind of mutually assured destruction kind of thing, creates a bond where you can be intimate and tell secrets to that person because you share this secret with the external world. You know what I'm saying? The moment they were able to share the secret where Paul goes along with the lie, he's now culpable, as, as is witnessed by um, um, Angus saying, uh, now you owe me, and uh, which I love because it was like, that is such a ballsy thing to say. And it's so emblematic of the kid's personality, right? It's, it's also, David, just to interject again, like another thing I love about it is a, a bit like in one of the preceding scenes where Angus helps out the kid who wets the bed and you're like, oh, that's a nice sentimental moment. And then he follows it up with fucking asparagus here, like for, for a moment, for a split second, you think that like some sort of sympathy has flooded Angus and he's doing a nice thing. But then the next moment it, you, you yank back from that sentimentality and actually he's doing it to get some leverage over Paul. I love that. Exactly right. Yeah. Don't try to leverage me, Mr. Telly. Basically, you're like, look, I'm not looking. I'm just looking to, you know, do something. I just say I did something nice for you. That's all I'm saying. So they go to the, they go to the winning ticket, which was a bar in um, New Hartford, Connecticut or Cobra, Connecticut, that my dad and I used to go to occasionally. Um, and and he wants a beer. So he's going to push it. You know, he's going to push it like, you know, how about I get a beer? It's like you will not get a beer. You know, It's like I'm not giving you a middle <laughs> high. You already, already had 10 milligrams of Percodan. That's plenty. Um, so he's going to work the problem. Right. And then when I figured out that you can put people on the same side of a lie, which generates a degree of intimacy that can be, you know, expanded upon, you expand upon it. But then, like you said, you owe me, you buy it back, you show that there may be an intimacy, but there's also agendas. No one's ever free of agendas in a relationship. Everybody's got an agenda in a relationship, you know, uh, whether it's spoken or or unspoken, whatever. So then basically the next move in the screenplay was to, to see if I could do it again as I got closer, which I did with Hugh Cavanaugh. But this time, Paul lies, and Angus goes along. Remember, he sort of says, but then he kind of fucks with him a little bit. He kind of goes like, you know, uh, what does he say? He's like, yeah, I'm his, I'm his nephew Leonard. You know, and he's also writing a book on ancient cameras. It's like, well, you know, the camera obscures. So tell him the title of the book. Oh, they don't want to know the title. You know, he forces him to come up with the title. So he he makes Paul lie even further, and then, you know. Paul calls him on it, like, you have no right to judge me. And it was a private conversation. He said, it wasn't a private conversation. Me and the wife were there. And so he pushes Paul, who's desperately searching for his, his Mickey of, um, of Jim Beam, right, for, for his fifth of Jim. And Paul confesses that he never went to college. So there's another secret, you know? So there's a lie that they're complicit with. And then from, from an exposition step, but more important, a character standpoint, we learn more about the character because now this intimacy has been reinforced with a second lie. Um, so that those were the big threshold turns for me in understanding the screenplay. And then sort of the run toward the end in the late in the second act and the third act was kind of capitalizing on this intimacy and this trust and seeing how far I could take their relationship. And that's separate and apart from the Mary story, you know, which we haven't discussed yet. 
that is all fascinating. There, there are so many things in that that I want to come back to. First, first and foremost, though, we should talk about Mary, who we haven't discussed so far. I know that uh, she was in part based on your mother and, and the courage that she was forced to, to muster after your parents' divorce. Um, I know that also, you know, the, the storyline involving her son was very much based on you imagining what it might have been like if you had been ripped away from her. And it's fascinating. Like Mary's arc in this film is not as clear cut or as tidy as Morning Woman Learns to Live Again, which a more heavy handed filmmaker might have uh, swayed towards. It's something more subtle in the holdovers, something quieter. Can you walk me through it? Sure. I mean, basically, when I was growing up, again, as a kid, um, see, the Vietnam War ended when I was like 10, 11. But like I said, lower middle class household, my my uncles were, um, my, my father, my mother's brothers were uh, janitors at the Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, and at the courthouse in Middletown, Connecticut. So I grew up a lot around a lot of working class and lower middle class people. And I noticed, uh, even as a kid, that most of the people going to Vietnam were blue collar kids and keep on not my age cohort i'm too young for that but like my friends older brothers and more, more importantly their uncles you know what i'm saying and this yeah. kind of crossed racial boundaries because you know we had a, a group of fairly diverse people in our lives um but i noticed that most if not all the kids who were going the young men who were going were um poor or or blue collar you know and most of them that weren't coming back were black and latino because as I subsequently found out through some rather extensive research, especially through 66, it tapered off after 66, but if um, I think black people are 10% of the US population, they were 13% of the draft pool. And in 1966, uh, I think it was 23% of the major battlefield casualties, um, deaths and, and you know, dismemberment and, and ferocious, terrible casualties were black soldiers, um, because that was the way it was sort of like structured. They were put on the front lines. And so I thought from my own personal experience, how do I create something that feels real from a mother's grief standpoint? And that was sort of kind of a thought experiment with me kind of imagining what it would be like for my mother if instead of I lost her when I was fairly young, it was supposed to be losing her, she lost me. How would she, how would she go on? And then thinking about how a black woman in that situation would be dealing with the social reality of what was going on. And then very carefully, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote, I wrote Mary, I think um, I tried to, I was leaning into Chekhov a lot with some of these silences and some of the actions because I wanted to create these little tableaus because I I wanted I wanted to give space for the actress, the actor to to fill in their experience because I knew that I couldn't write, I couldn't write in my totality from the experience of a, of a black woman having had that experience in the sixties. But what I knew I could do was I could create space for someone and hopefully give them the, the, the themes and some of the dialogues so that the acting would take us the rest of the way. And so, you know, I structured Mary that way. And what I wanted from her was not this tidy resolution, but this idea of letting go. When, I think once you lose a child, you know, I have two children and there are three aphorisms that I always think of when I think about kids, one is, you know, you're only happy as your saddest child, which is true. Um, the other one is to have a child means to have your body, your heart walking outside, around outside your body for the rest of your life where anybody could take a shot at it. That was actually in the movie. That was part of a scene that was cut. Um, but I wanted her to sort of have to continue with her life, bearing this grief as she would for the rest of her life, but get some degree of closure and understanding. And that's why 
that scene with the mystery box that I call the mystery box where she opens it up and it's his baby shoes and his bottle and his clothes. And she just silently puts it into her, you know, her soon to be nephew or niece's room at her sister's house. That's her sort of going as close as I can come to moving on and passing on the love and the legacy of my son. This is what I'm doing for you, my beloved sister kind of thing, you know? Um, and that's as far as I thought would, was, was, would be real. I mean, I don't know. You don't recover from that loss, but you can pass on the legacy of this beautiful young man to your sister and in that way kind of preserve his memory uh, and the love you had for him. So that was sort of my ob objective in creating Mary's arc and writing that scene. Um, and then what she does later, just to sit there and hold his hand, you know, and connect with him is sort of a residual love and understanding that she's kind of, I think that's been amplified in her. I think it was always in her. Witness the fact that she says, you don't tell a boy who's left on a Christmas that you don't want him, right? So she always had that, even before the, the, Curtis, the Curtis scene uh, in, at, in, the, in the nursery. But the idea that um, she, could, she could have some level, if not closure, but of, of, of processing the grief and of, of getting further along in the grief, that was always the arc that I wanted for her. What's really special about that scene, I think, is it's between two women on separate sides of motherhood. So on one hand, you have Mary, who's recently lost a child. Meanwhile, her sister is expecting a child. This really interesting, really beautiful symmetry going on in that scene. I love that entire segment, the road trip segment of The Holdovers, David. Like, obviously, you had threaded into the movie early that Angus has this desire to go to Boston. He'd, he'd pleaded with his mum earlier on to, to kind of go in act one. You must have landed on the idea early of it being revealed that his desire to go was rooted in missing his father and wanting to visit him. How did you work out the other components? Because as you touched on, we have the, the reveal of Paul's backstory. We have Mary and, and kind of her letting go in, in that scene. Talk to me about like, yeah, th this whole segment and how it came together, why it was important to get out of the school as, as we move towards the conclusion of this story. If you're familiar with, I, and like I said, Alexander's an incredibly close friend of mine and a collaborator, and I think a brilliant writer is a genius filmmaker. A great road trip writer as well. That's it, man. He loves a road trip, you know? There you go. And he literally said like, hey, would it be fun if they went on the road? I was like, dude, surprise, surprise. Go back to Sullivan's Travels. I mean, so many of the great, oh, brother, where are thou? So many great American movies. And Alexander McPain movies have road trip elements to them. I mean, even, uh, well, certainly not not election, but Nebraska, right? Descendants has that component, Sideways, you know? So a lot of his movies have this component. Um, I wanted to have, you know, basically his mandate was let's have fun. And one of the great things about Alexander, one of the thousand great things about him as a friend and as a collaborator is that like, he's like, never told me what to do. He would, he would have opinions as the director. And I really, I'm spoiled forever because, you know, um, writing for a director like him and having this kind of relationship, you can have a really civilized, calm conversation about the relative components of what we're trying to accomplish, right? Um, we wanted to have fun. And so my feeling was, we need to get to Boston. How much fun can we have in Boston? And there were times early, in earlier drafts where they picked up a hitchhiker. There were times in earlier drafts where they actually took Dr. Green's car, which was a Bentley, because I'm like, let's take let's take like a Bentley. Let's take like a old school Bentley on the road. But then the Dr. Green character who in earlier drafts had had a stroke and was still alive, they took his car. Um, and this is before, you know, Mary's car was an option. And we're like, oh, we'll just take Mary's car, you know? Um, but, you know, before they've gotten busted for a variety of things, you know, uh, like various complications that occurred. 
But I started thinking to myself, what's the most fun we can possibly have? What would this kid want to do? You know, and originally, there, and now it's in the film, you don't see the dialogue. Uh, you don't hear the dialogue, right? You see the lip flap, you see that they're moving. There's Mark Orton's brilliant score playing as they're driving to Boston and they're kind of talking and laughing, right? Um, those, the dialogue that is blanked out of those scenes is like, you know, a lot of fantastic things. We're going to go see the Museum of Fine Art. There's a special antiquities exhibit. And of course, we'll visit a whaling ship, you know, like that. And he's like, God <laughs> damn it, you know? So it's like, this was you know, the educational trip he didn't want, you know? Um, so there were, there were conversations about that. But then we thought from kind of a montage standpoint, you know, what could, what would a kid, what would a 17 year old kid? And sometimes, by the way, I think Dom looks like he's 15 in the movie. And sometimes it looks like he's 25. Like he's, he was 19 at the time, but the way you light him and shoot him, he could look like a kid or like a young man, you know? But let's stipulate that he's a kid in, in his heart, right? At Christmas. He says, and that's a reverse engineered monologue. Where he goes, you know, I don't want to sit around here staying at the walls. I want to, you know, I want to go to Boston. I want to see a real Christmas tree. I want to go ice skating, see a real Christmas tree. Not that stupid thing. I thought you liked it. You said it was nice. It is, you know, but, um, let's boil it down to that you know so i thought to myself okay you know great ice skating like there's a great movie that was a huge influence on me called the last detail by hal ashby there's an ice skating scene in that you know so i was like let's do an ice skating scene originally and then the um so let's have fun right so then i had written a, a winter carnival scene where he uh is shooting like at this winter carnival game and again that was sort of an homage to to um last detail and I get a call after it was in the script for, again, like a year and a half from Alexander uh, on location going, you're killing me with this carnival. I was like, what's wrong? He goes, I got to get all these picture cars and it's night shooting and it's extras and it's outside. And I'm like, okay, all right, okay, cool. What's going on? He goes, we got to find something else. Got to find it fast. And one of the great virtues of being a TV writer is I hung up the phone and I'm like, okay, fast. So I came up with three different scenarios. Um, one was a newsstand. Um I think another was like a candy store. Uh, and then the third one was what we call the Sally Ann, which is a Salvation Army when I was growing up. We call them the Sally Ann back East. And he was like thrift shopping and he sees these two girls in, in the thrift shop and he flirts with them. And uh, I write these scenes in rapid succession, like three hours, I banged out one hour per scene. Cause you know, they're scouting. He really wants to lock this in. You know, we wanna, we wanna like get our first AD and our production designer, everything they need as quickly as possible. Cause we're heading, we're rushing toward production at this point. So I finished the scene, just sent him off. I'm not kidding. 30 seconds after I hit send, phone rings. It's Alexander. I pick it up. He's like, duck pin bowling. I'm like, what? He goes, duck pin bowling. <laughs> yeah. You know what? He goes, do you know what it is? I said, yeah, I grew up going, I think there's one in, in like Worcester, Mass or Acton. He goes, yeah, duck pin bowling. I go, what about it? He goes, we have this duck pin bowling alley. Duck pin bowling scene. Click. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I just wrote that duck pin bowling scene kind of in the, like, it took me like an hour, to, less than an hour to do it. Cause I sort of, you know, I could see the the educational component flipping where he's teaching this guy and you you he mouths it, you don't see it. But the idea also thematically at one point, you know, we do it as a montage, but um, Paul's bowling, Paul's bowling, Paul's bowling. You know, I thought to myself, it's an educational, uh, uh, an opportunity to flip the educational element of it. So this guy's going to teach now Paul. Angus is going to teach Paul how to do something. Um, at one point he says, okay, you have to kind of release your wrist like this. Um hold on tightly, let go lightly, which to me was going to be a metaphor for what he does with his life at the end. He holds on tightly to Barton, but he sacrifices himself for Angus and he lets go lightly. You know, you can see him mouthing the words because we blanked it out and put Mark Orton scary. But you can see him saying like that, which was one of the themes, but Alexander being Alexander and a great filmmaker, he's like, maybe too explicit. We'll take it out. 
but yeah. you know it was an opportunity for for him then to say you know you're a pretty good teacher kid and too bad most people like you know dislike you pretty much hate you but you must know that and he calls back the thing he says and in, to to uh, paul in, in the museum and then and then once we got back i mean the movie could end the movie really ends or there are three points you at which you could end this film the first point is that that kind of tableau that kind of i told you i talked about from outside when you just see that the flash and they hear the muffled explosion they all hug boom end of the movie we'll get the credits there Similarly, you could go back to Barton, establish the, the ordinary world, the return of the ordinary world. And when he gives them the makeup exam and he says something, you know, uh, pick up your pencils in Latin uh, and he looks at Angus, boom, you could roll the credits there, right? Conceivably. And make it a shorter film. But I always wanted that next chapter, the real third act, where, you know, because I think it's a TV writer in me too. I set up that snow globe, kind of a little homage to um, Citizen Kane in a way, but I set up that snow globe and I wanted to pay it off. Uh, and, I, and I just, you know, to me, you want to use, it's like, you know, the old the old kind of First Nations hunting um, aphorism, use all parts of the animal, like use every single part of, of the narrative. If we've established a snow globe, how much fun would it be if he'd stolen it, given it to his dad and his dad tried to cave somebody's skull in with it? What kind of crisis could that per, per, you know, precipitate? And so, you know, the road trip section and then the return to Barton all kind of fuel the road trip section is designed to sort of bond them also to to provide some closure to mary or at least some movement in mary's narrative and and to put them in position so when they get back conceivably again much like the kids you met at the top who end up all of a sudden leaving in a helicopter okay we're back at school i guess everything's gonna be the same or normal no it's not you know like maybe there's been some incremental movement no no wait 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 a second there's a huge crisis that's still coming but that idea of subverting expectations and using the road trip to sort of reinforce and and create the opportunity for a greater degree of bonding, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, th there are two things I really want to react to there. Number one, um, you mentioned Angus and the sort of snow globe reveal um, that spells disaster for him. He's going to have to go to military school. Um, of course, as we've been talking about, there is an actual conflict going on and, and going to military school, you, you know, this could spell a very different life for him given the backdrop of this movie. It's already a disaster though for Angus on an emotional level before he, uh, you know, before he's threatened with that because the sting of going to see his dad who you feel like he is in his absence, he has put on some sort of pedestal and he has thought that there might be some sort of salvation for his loneliness in this father figure. Um, of course, that idea disappears as soon as he sees his dad and he sees the degree Well, he just sees how unwell he is. And um, it's so painful. It's heartbreaking. Um, I love how that's all treated and the sort of camaraderie that follows how the other two characters really bond around him. And there are lots of scenes of really beautiful camaraderie, like the, the Cherie's Jubilee. Am I saying that right? Cherie's Jubilee in the car park. That, that's from life that I was denied Cherie's Jubilee when I was about nine years old. And that's, that's exactly from life, that whole scene. Yes. Oh, no way. Um, the other thing to say about like that, that end sequence in which, yeah, Paul lies for Angus. We have one more lie. Um, he takes the fall for him. He loses his job which um, is what he feared at the very beginning of the film. There's this 180 on his part. It feels like the road trip and, and the whole Christmas break in general has been transformative for him. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have fallen on his sword 
for Angus, for this kid who he, you know, thought of as a lazy, what's the phrase he uses at the beginning of the film? A lazy Philistine. It, that, that's how he regards these kids in the beginning. He, he comes around and, and something has clearly changed. The experience has unlocked in Paul something that allows him to do this incredibly generous act. What's happened there? How has he come to that realization that not for ourselves alone are we born? What it really means, yeah. I think there's the scene in which you're saying is the Cherry's Jubilee scene, the restaurant scene, which was originally set at Anthony's Pier 4, which has since closed. Uh, and so we did another restaurant there. It was a famous Boston restaurant. Um, when the kid tells him the truth, the kid finally tells him the truth, you know, the ultimate truth. Uh, and the only truth that's more devastating than the truth of what happened with Angus and his father is the truth that Mary had to suffer through, right? Um, but to to tell the truth about he used to be fine, he used to be my dad, that that monologue, you know, that I think you can only do a monologue like you have to earn a monologue like that, you know. That's the sort of thing, if you're a bad writer, you put that in the first five pages or something, you know you got to earn that. And so it lands around page in a 114 page screenplay or 106 page screenplay. When you cut out the deleted scenes, it lands on like, you know, page 90, you know, something like that. So it's very, very late in the movie. Um, you know, I just think it was really important to sort of have that kid tell Paul his truth, the ultimate truth, the thing that he would not want to discuss with anybody. Like he lies, my father's dead. He tries to run away. He doesn't want anybody to see us. He's ashamed. He's ashamed and he's terrified. So the idea that he can tell Paul, I'm ashamed, I'm terrified. Um, I don't know who I am. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I, I'm lost. I'm alone. I don't have any friends. I'm a, I'm a fuck up. You know, I, 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 I do all these terrible things and I'm going to end up getting kicked out and going to Fork Union. To have that sort of reality and to have grown a f fond of the kid as he has and to have the kids say that like you know to me paul's choice to stay with the only life he's ever known or give it up to save this kid his mind in a weird way or at least the mechanism that allows him to do what he does is created in that moment in that restaurant scene so at the end when he makes that when he levels that final lie and changes it's because of what he heard was well, the entire film, but what he heard in that restaurant scene, you know, realizing, realizing, you know, what it really means to be an educator, what it really means to be not just a teacher, but, you know, to sort of like move this person along. He's, I think Paul spent his life moving people through the school, you know, under the auspices of, you know, the kind of like Barton uh, ethos, you know, uh, but to really live that ethos, not, not for ourselves alone are we born, that, that stoic ethos also that he embraces is something else entirely, you know? Um, so I think he makes that sacrifice because of what he learns and what he experiences with the kid. Hopefully that was responsive. I don't mean to run <laughs> No, that was beautiful. Um, David, because you spoke about him so movingly at the beginning of this conversation, I want to end with this question. Have you thought at all about what your uncle Earl would have made of the holdovers? Uh, you're gonna get, you're gonna get me a little bit here. Um, yeah, I think he would have. Uh, I think he would have said, "Good job, kid." I hope he would have, um, because even though you know he was not kind of awkwardly challenged or different, he had his own challenges. You know, he didn't have hyperhidrosis, but you know, he was his own, his, own, his own challenges. He was underestimated by certain people, and you know, and and uh, but he was a he was a giant to me and a, and a hero to many people. And I think I, I think I hope he would have loved it. I think I think he would have appreciated. It. He would have soft pedaled his impact on me and kind of recognized um a love letter to my mother you know 
And uh, I hope to God that, you know, I, it's funny, I'm tight with his widow and uh, her daughter who we were raised and they both love the movie and they both see him in the movie. So the living memory, you know, um, the living memory of him in those people uh, means a tremendous amount to all of us, to me especially, and the fact that they recognize it for what it is and appreciate it for what it is and really love it for what it is, you know, tells me that he would have, I think, loved it too, you know. I think you're right, David. If uh, Miller High Life is the champagne of beers, this this has been the champagne of interviews. Thanks for your time, man. Thank you for this movie. And and by the way, thanks for not calling me the human form of penis cancer in the hour or so that we've shared together. It's never leveled that act. That is one. So that's a bridge too far. I would never do that. Never. never. <laughs> I do appreciate it, David. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. Cheers, brother. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash scriptapart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.